If you have a copy of God's Word with you, and I hope that you do, would love to you would love for you to find Colossians chapter two. If you have the app on your phone, that's fine. If you need to use one of the Bibles that's in the pew rack right in front of you, uh, you can turn to page nine hundred eighty three, and that is where you will find Colossians chapter two today. We're going to be in verses eleven through 15. And if you are a guest with us, uh, we want you to know right from the beginning of this message that we believe that this Bible that we are opening right now or finding on our phones is the inerrant inspired word of God himself. Uh, We believe that God wrote a book and it's about himself. And that's good news, that the Bible is not about us. It is for us to know God and to love him and to follow him and to worship him. So, so we're not coming to the scriptures right now to elevate us. We, we don't come to the scriptures to elevate ourselves. We come to the scripture to get underneath it, to submit to its authority. And, and we believe so much in the sufficiency of God's word that we don't think that what I'm going to say today matters at all unless it agrees with what God's word says. We want to collectively be a church that says it doesn't matter what I think. What matters is what the Bible says, which is why we want you to see God's word for yourself today uh, in your your own copy of God's word. We'll have the words on the screen as well. God's word is what matters. Uh, I could get this wrong, but God's word always gets it right. And we are going through Paul's letter to the church at Colossae with this purpose in mind, that we would see the supremacy, and the centrality of Christ in everything. In everything. Because unless and until Jesus is at the center, nothing else will make sense. Until he is the one that we value the most, we won't value anything else correctly. Our our only hope in this life is having more of Jesus. We need to be so filled with him that there wouldn't be room for anything else. Because in our brokenness, the Bible doesn't point us to a system, and it doesn't point us to a program. It points us to a person, and his name is Jesus. And when you really find him, there is no reason to search anywhere else because he is the treasure who contains all the treasure. And so the first command in the entire letter to the church at Colossae wasn't, isn't until chapter 2 and verse 6. That's what we saw last week because up until that point, Paul was just trying to fill them with truth about Jesus. And then we get to chapter 2 and verse 6 last week where he says, walk in Christ. Have a life that is characterized by as being rooted in Christ and built up into Christ. Whether your life is moving either direction, you're setting down roots or you are building up, your trajectory is always further into him. And and the security and the stability that results from being established in Christ is what keeps us safe in this crazy world around us. It's what keeps us safe from other philosophies. And and it doesn't even matter if those philosophies philosophies are humanistic in nature or whether they are demonic in nature. If it is not of or from or found in Christ, we wouldn't touch them. Right, church? We wouldn't touch them. Just like a six-year-old who only wants red roses for his mom on Mother's Day. If it's not Christ, we don't want it. We want more of him. We want to be filled with him, as verse 10 says. And and, and that could lead 
to, to at least two questions as I see it. And so let me vocalize some of those. The first question that you could ask from, from saying that, that if it's not of or from or found in Christ, I, I don't want it, don't want to touch it, don't want to hear it. And the first question is, is why? Right? Why would we avoid anything that isn't of or from or found in Christ? Or, or here's how someone that you know might ask you the question, why are you so close-minded? All right, have you heard that? Like, why, like why, 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 why don't you give credence to what other people believe? Why do you think that what you believe is better than other? Why are you so close-minded to other thoughts and other ideas? Uh, and then the second question that we should be asking based on this truth that we've been filled with Christ is, is how? Right? How have we been filled with the one that we were once separated from? How has that happened? I was talking with our Kids for Truth kids about this on Wednesday. Uh, in Kids for Truth on Wednesday nights, we spent the last few weeks learning about the greatness of God. What makes God so great? And, and, and it's really a two-part question. The first is, is God great? Which the Bible answers, you know, affirmatively yes. And then the second question is, is God's greatness great for me? Is God's greatness great for you, right? Because if God's greatness is only great for him, well, good for him, but I need to go find something else that works for me. So we have a two-part question when thinking about the greatness of God. Is God great? And then does that greatness mean anything good for me? Or do I need to find my own way or find something else that works? And the answer to both of those questions, why, why do we avoid anything that isn't found in Christ, and how are we filled in Christ, the answer to both of those is found in the good news of the gospel, which we get to learn about today and celebrate today. How is it possible that we have been filled with Christ? Uh, Some of you have noted uh, that I've been quite passionate over the last few weeks I don't know if that's really a new thing for me, but maybe just a, an, another level. And if you think I might calm down today, you are mistaken. So just a warning, right? Because, because this is so good. It's so good. And this is where our identity needs to be found. So just buckle up. If you are in Christ, if you are in Christ, that means that you are alive and you are forgiven and you are victorious. We're going to celebrate that today, and that's, that's where Paul leads us in this passage. Let's see how he gets there. Let's read our whole passage. Verse 11 through 15 of Colossians 2 says this. In him, that's key, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. You have been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Whew, okay. As we work through this passage, these five verses, I want us to see five realities Five realities for those of us who are in Christ. 
And, and the first couple take some work, but we are headed towards celebration. So don't get lost. Stick with me. Uh, let, let's read verse 11 again, which gives us our first reality of being in Christ. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Okay, so here's a reality that we don't have a worship song celebrating yet. In Christ, we are spiritually circumcised. And this is better news than you might think. So, so follow me. Uh, circumcision was the physical sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, we read about it in Genesis 17. God made a covenant with Abraham that he would make a great nation out of Abraham's descendants. That he would bless Abraham and his family with, with land and with lots of people, lots of people. And the physical sign of that covenant was that every male descendant of Abraham would be circumcised when he was eight days old. This marked the Israelites as set apart as God's people and as recipients of his covenant that he made with Abraham. It was a sign of that covenant. And, and many suggest that Paul introduces the picture of circumcision here as a response to false teachers who were trying to persuade Gentile believers in Colossae that they weren't right with God yet because they were never circumcised. And so they had to get circumcised in order to actually be right with God. Like it's the same thing that the Judaizers were teaching to people in Galatia and really causing Gentiles to trip up. And, and Paul says that in Christ... The circumcision that matters is not physical. It is one performed without hands, in verse 11. It is, it is spiritual. And, and this was not exactly a new concept, because even in the Old Testament, they used the physical act of circumcision as a spiritual metaphor. So, so Moses told the Israelites to circumcise their hearts. Right, there, there are other references to uncircumcised ears or, or lips. This idea that something has to be stripped away in order for there to be purity or holiness or righteousness. Uh, but, but Paul goes beyond saying that we need to circumcise our hearts here and, and says in verse 11 that this spiritual circumcision involves putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So if you want to see how pervasive our sin problem is, which is probably not something we're excited to see, but we're going to anyway, sorry. Our, here's, here's how pervasive our problem is. Our whole body is infected with it. it we, you, you might have heard about the time when Jesus was teaching and he provocatively said, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Right? If, your, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is, it is better to enter into the kingdom of God with one less hand and one less eye than for your whole body to go to hell. And Jesus, in that passage, wasn't giving us step-by-step step, step instructions as to how to get to heaven, right? Okay, start by cutting off this, and then cut off this, and then you'll be good to go. That's not, that's not, what, he's, that's not what he's saying, right? Uh, he was teaching about the seriousness and the devastating effects of our sinful condition. 
And if the problem really was just my hand or just my eye, go get the saw, right? Because it would be better. It would be better to lose a hand and enter into the kingdom of God than for your whole body to go to hell. But of course, the problem is much deeper than that, right? Cutting off my hand won't solve my problem. Plucking out my eye won't solve my problem. The sin nature of our hearts has infected the entirety of us. It's not that a small part of us needs to be pruned or purified. This spiritual circumcision involves putting off the entire body of the flesh. Because if we are, ever go- if we are going to be righteous, all of us, as in and of ourselves, needs to be stripped away. We need to start over. That's what the Bible tells us. We need our sin nature to be cut away, and we need an entirely new nature And I think it's natural for us to try to minimize our sin because that's what guilty people tend to do. We don't want to feel guilty, so we try to minimize it. In fact, lots of people today, the only time you really hear the word sin is when you're you're in church. Because we don't use that word anymore. We just say people make mistakes. Right? And people get thrown off when I, just, when I just openly talk about my kids as sinners, as if, like, I don't love them. No, I love them enough to let them know that what the Bible says, right? And I'm a sinner too. And so we just openly use that word in our house and it throws other people off, right? I, I don't tell my kids they just made a mistake. Nope, you're a sinner and you need Jesus. And so do you. And so do I. That's the message of the Bible. It's good news. Trust me, we'll get there, okay? Right? And so, and so, so everyone else does it. Right? That's what people say. Well, everyone else was doing it, or everyone else does it. That doesn't work with God, because he would say that's exactly the problem, that this is what everyone has done, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And you can't embrace the gospel of Jesus while attempting to minimize your sin at the same time. You can't embrace the gospel of Jesus and attempt to minimize your sin at the same time. The gospel says we do not have a small problem. We had a problem that leads to eternal death. And this is why Jesus went to the cross for us. The the physical picture that shows how our sin needs to be dealt with is Jesus' cut up, torn, stripped away body hanging on the cross. This is why we read Romans 6.6 6 earlier. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. On the cross, Jesus' sinless body as our substitute was treated as sinful because we are. So rather than being captive to our sin-sick selves that are encapsulated by our breaking down bodies, we can put that old self on the cross and be set free from it. That's the good news of the gospel. In Christ, we are spiritually circumcised. But that's not all. Verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So in Christ, we are spiritually circumcised and we are spiritually baptized. If you were to hear verse 11 and ask, when did this spiritual circumcision, this circumcision made without hands, take place? Paul's answer would be at the moment of conversion when you were spiritually 
baptized, when through faith you were joined with Christ, being unified with him in his death, and also raised with him in his resurrection. This is what the physical act of baptism is representing as having already taken place in an individual's life. We believe that that physical baptism is an outward picture of a spiritual reality. You are identifying yourself saying, I'm with Jesus. The act of being dunked in water is just a picture of being buried with him in his death and raised to walk in newness of life. That is a spiritual reality before it's a physical one. It's a spiritual reality that takes place the moment you place your faith in Jesus, not the moment you get wet. Okay, Because the moment that you place your faith in Christ and Christ alone, you are united with him. You are united with him in his death, believing that you are also united with him in his resurrection. So, get this, being baptized in water does not simply represent that you were converted. It represents how you were converted. The Holy Spirit draws us to himself opening our spiritual eyes to see the beauty and the glory of Jesus. He gives us faith to believe that on our own, there is no way for us to be righteous. We are infected with sin through and through. But we have a representative, and his name is Jesus. And when you place your faith in him, the Holy Spirit of God joins us to Christ. His death is our death. His life is our Life. When we place our faith in Jesus, we are spiritually baptized into Christ. And if that is a spiritual reality for you, but you've never publicly demonstrated that by being baptized, we would love to talk to you more about that. Let us know on that communication card if that's something, a step that you need to take in obedience. But Paul here is speaking to spiritual realities. We were spiritually circumcised when we were spiritually baptized into Christ. And by the way, I I obviously spent uh, a a lot of time trying to study those two verses and figure out their practical and spiritual implications. And so if you have any questions about either of those two verses and would like clarifications on things, feel free to reach out to me this week. Send me an email. Send me a text. I would love to dialogue more about those. But, But look at how our identity changes in light of this reality in verse 13. Look at the switch. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. This is the good news of the gospel that fills us with wonder and hope and gratitude no matter what circumstances come to us in the brokenness of this world. In our trespasses and sinful selves, we were spiritually dead. That was our identity. But in Christ, we are made alive together with Christ. In Christ, we are made alive. If if you need something to be thankful for this week, here's one of many things you can be thankful for. I'm so thankful that verse 13 is in the past tense. I'm so thankful that verse 13 is in the past tense. And I so desperately want verse 13 to be in the past tense for you. We were dead in our trespasses and sinful selves, but not anymore. 
our identity was found in our resume of sinful rebellion against God. That was all that we had to show for ourselves in the eyes of God. From the day that Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we have all been physically born, spiritually dead. We were physically born, spiritually dead, which means that we are by nature separated from a holy God who is the author and sustainer of life. And our slowly dying physical bodies serve as evidence of that greater spiritual problem. Why do we break down? Right? Why, does, why do our bodies hurt so much? Right? Why, if you slept the wrong way, you can barely move? Like, why does this happen to us? Why disease? Why all these things? Our breaking down physical bodies are, are simply a reminder of the spiritual reality that is true of all of us without Christ. Because when we are separated, wow, that has never happened to me before, but we're going to be okay. Let's see, I didn't lose the... Uh, I didn't lose the, uh, the battery, so that's good. And then I think I can click this back in, and we're good to go again. That was exciting. That was fun. <laughs> I hold this in my left hand every week, and, man, and now you're going to pay attention to it, and it's going to be distracting. Hopefully in a month you'll trust me to hold on to it again. Okay, so <laughs> where was I? That, that's a great question, right? Our, 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 our physical bodies are simply evidence of the spiritual reality that separated from God, we are dying. We are, we are dead. We are naturally spiritually dead beings trapped in these bodies, which means we needed a miracle. Someone who could intervene and interrupt the laws of nature, and that's exactly what God did. This is why Jesus came and lived the perfect life that you and I failed to live. This is why he died on the cross in our place and rose from the dead. If you place your faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, instead of your own resume being what defines you, Right? Instead of, instead of trusting in what you've done, you, you no longer have to be dominated by your sin nature because it can be stripped away, crucified with Christ and buried, and then we have been made alive through faith, not in what we've done, not in what we've accomplished, but through faith in Christ. So we are not separated from Jesus anymore. We are in Christ, and Christ is alive. If you trust his death to represent your death, then his life is your life. We're no longer dead in our trespasses because our trespasses have been forgiven. How did he do that? How could just God forgive us of all the sins that we committed against him? Verse 14 answers that question. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, how? By nailing it to the cross. So in Christ, we are forgiven. We had a, a two-part problem. More than two, to be honest, but two that are addressed here. And, and one is solved in verse 14, and the other is solved in verse 15. In, in verse 14... We were guilty debtors. That was our problem. Because of our rebellion against God's good design and God's good laws, in the courtroom of heaven, those laws have testified against us that we had accrued an insurmountable debt that no, no amount of good deeds could ever begin to repay. 
right? And, and if God were to look the other way, right, or just to sweep all of our sins under the rug, that would betray his justice. And the legal demands that resulted from this debt was that someone had to pay. Someone had to pay. And the only sufficient payment was death. And that was a payment that you and I could not afford. And at the cross, the price of our sin debt was paid in full because there is a grace that is greater than all of our sins. And when people looked at Jesus bleeding and dying on the cross, there was an inscription above his head, if you remember. So when people looked at Jesus on the cross, they could see this inscription and it says, this is Jesus, king of the Jews. And that was meant to be mockery, right? Like, look at what your king did. He's dying. But when God the Father looked at the cross on that day, what he saw inscribed was the record of all of our sins. And they were nailed to the cross with Jesus. The insurmountable debt that we had accrued that demanded death in order to be paid. And if you are in Christ, when I say that all of your sins were nailed along with Jesus to the cross, let me tell you, I mean all of them. Past, present, and future. The price for the sins you have not committed yet has already been paid. The, the record that would be held against you has been expunged. It has been canceled. The sins that you still hold against yourself aren't held against you in God's justice system if you are in Christ. You are forgiven. And if you are a follower of Jesus, I, I would just like you to think about this question. Have you embraced forgiveness as part of your identity in Christ? Because if I could just make an observation, so many people walk through life allowing their sins to be an anchor around their neck. Or, or they avoid intimacy with Jesus because they think he's always upset with them. Right? And, and, and when we think we've offended, we tend to avoid. And so that's why a lot of people are avoiding Jesus. But, but what it means to be forgiven is you don't have to wear that anchor anymore. And, and what many Christians are doing by the way they live their lives is, is in perpetual guilt and shame is they are essentially taking their sins off of the cry, cross and trying to nail them back onto themselves. And if you are in Christ, I don't want you to make light of your sin. No, I want you to recognize that your sin is too heavy for you to wear, but it isn't too heavy for the cross to bear. Don't try to take that off the cross and put that back on yourself. You can't handle it. That's why Jesus came. Don't try to wear that yourself. It's too heavy for you, but it's not too heavy for the cross. So, 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 you, so, so you just leave it where it belongs. Leave it at the cross. Leave it there. You don't have to, you don't have to leave here and go do whatever you want. That's not what being freed from sin means. Oh good, I have grace, so now I can just live however I want. That's not what we're called to. No, because when we're freed from our sin, we're free to run further into Christ. 
So, so recognizing the forgiveness in Jesus doesn't just have us go live however we want. No, it frees us to run to him, full sprint, unhindered, no guilt, no shame. Why? Because my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. In Christ, you are forgiven. And that's not all. It gets even better. Verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In Christ, we are victorious. And you have to see this. This verse is presenting a pretty graphic picture that would have been well known to the Colossians, but it's easy for us to miss. And so we need to see it. Because when we do, this is life-changing. I mentioned that the problem that the cross solves in verse 14 is the problem of us being guilty debtors. The problem in verse 15 is that we were all captives. We were all under the oppressive rule and authority of Satan and the powers of darkness. And that might not be a part of our story that we love to talk about or we're eager to claim, but that's the reality outside of Christ according to God's word in Ephesians 2 and other places. And when Paul says that Jesus disarmed rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them, that's a picture of how a Roman general would celebrate a victory over an enemy army. It was done in such a way to maximize the humiliation of those they had defeated. And so there would be a victory parade where the Roman general would ride on his chariot through the city streets with people celebrating, right? And they would take captive some of the strongest soldiers from the defeated enemy army. And they would strip them of their clothes and have them walk in chains behind the victorious general's chariot. So you have a victorious general, you have these humiliated soldiers of the enemy army in chains walking behind them. They are walking in open shame to their death, while the general is triumphant. And that's the picture Paul wants us to have of what Jesus has done for us. He has triumphed over all the powers of darkness, and they are now disarmed and chained to his chariot. And, and the irony of this claim is that Jesus, in going to the cross, this was supposed to be his destiny, right? But because the whole means of crucifixion was intended to maximize pain and humiliation. Jesus was stripped of his clothes, led through the crowded streets in open shame to his death, the death that we deserved. But what was intended to be Jesus' humiliation was actually his greatest victory, because in going to the cross, he wasn't defeated by death. He was defeating death. The powers of darkness who thought they were conquering him were actually the ones who were being conquered. In his death and resurrection, Christ has triumphed over all other spiritual authorities. He has disarmed and shamed them. Righteousness has won. Evil has been defeated. And this is where we find one of the answers 
to the question I posed at the beginning. Why would we avoid anything that isn't of or from or found in Christ? Right? It, it, it's not that we are closed-minded. It's that we already know who's won. <laughs> and we want to be with him. Christ has won. Why would we go anywhere else? Christ has triumphed. And this is also where our two-part question about the greatness of Jesus comes into play. Question number one, is Jesus great? The Bible answers unequivocally and undisputed, yes. Question two, is Jesus' greatness great for us? Even more than you realize. Even more than you realize. Because if you are in Christ... If you have been united with him through faith in his death, burial, and resurrection, if you have bowed the knee to Jesus as king, then his victory is your victory. His triumph is your triumph. So if you see the picture of Jesus on his chariot in the victory parade with Satan and the other spiritual rulers of darkness chained and shamed behind him, do you know where you get to put yourself? in that picture? You're in the chariot with Jesus. His triumph is your triumph. His victory is your victory. You are with Christ. This is grace. This is grace. Because of our sin, we deserved to be the captives that were being shamefully led to our death. But because of Jesus, we are victorious over the captors that once shackled us. And it is so important for us to embrace this picture and the triumph that Christ has achieved for us because otherwise we will end up giving authority to those who have already had their authority taken away. I, I want this to change your life. I really do. How often do we act like we are powerless to fight against sin? Like we are victims of this world and its philosophies and its temptations. And we live like Satan is more powerful than Jesus. And like the messages of this world are better and more persuasive than the message of the gospel. We don't actually expect someone's life to be transformed from the inside out. We don't even think we can change many times. And that's exactly what Satan wants you to think. He wants you to think that he is more powerful than he is. In, instead of living in light of the reality that Jesus has disarmed him. Think about the practical applications of verse 15. When we are tempted, especially if it's an area that you have just struggled to ever gain any kind of victory, you know what Satan is doing? Satan is merely holding a plastic water pistol on your back. And he wants you to think he has a gun. He wants you to think he has more power than he actually has when the reality is that he has been disarmed. He wants you to think that you have no choice and that he has all the power and we act like there's nothing that we can do and we're just these helpless victims and we let Satan rob us of our joy and our purity and our righteousness and our peace instead of reminding him that Christ has won. I have such good news for you today. If you've placed your faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in Christ, you are made alive, you are forgiven, and you are victorious. Not because of you, but because of Jesus. Our identity is in Christ's victory, not sin's captivity. Amen, church? Do you believe that? Have you, have you received that for yourself? Right? Our identity is in Christ's victory, not sin's captivity. I I've been praying all weekend that this will set some of you free today. 
Your identity is not found in your sin. It's not. Your identity is not found in all the mistakes that you've made and all the guilt that you've been carrying that you were supposed to leave at the cross. If you are in Christ, your identity is found in the victory that Christ has won for you. And maybe you want to believe that, but deep down right now you're thinking, okay, that sounds great, and Pastor Tim, you're really excited again, but that's not how, that's not how I feel. That's not how I feel. Same. If we're being totally honest, life doesn't often feel very triumphant, does it? That's not how it feels. I, I don't often confuse my life for a victory parade, right? I don't know about you. But that's not how I go to bed, feeling like I just finished going through this parade. That's not how I feel. But praise God, our feelings don't dictate reality. Right? <laughs> they don't dictate reality. I'm not captive to how I feel because we are in Christ. God's word dictates my reality, and I am praying that Jesus will become the greatest reality in your life. So that way your identity won't be found in sin's captivity and what used to bind you. But your identity can be found in the victory that Christ has won. We are in Christ, church, and there is no better place to be. Amen? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I pray that today and every day we would sing in the victory that Christ has won. I pray that when we are tempted, we would remind Satan that he has lost the battle. He has lost the war. He has been disarmed. His destiny is death, but that is not our destiny. Because we have been rescued, we have been redeemed. We have been reconciled, we have been forgiven, we have been chosen, and we have victory because Christ is triumphant. And so Jesus, I pray that you would become a greater and greater reality in our lives. And as we see what you have done and we see how great you are, we wouldn't just worship you, but we would recognize how great your greatness is for us. That we would identify ourselves with you in your victory. And that we would just run full sprint further and further into Christ because there's nowhere else for us to go. Thank you for what you've done to change our identity. And I pray that we wouldn't try to find our identity other, anywhere else than in you. And I pray this in your name. In the name of Jesus, amen.